African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the rights to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Well, thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Uh, well, today we are going to be looking at unpacking yesterday's happenings in South Africa. We know that, that there's a big case underway. Coming back to the president of South Africa, paying back the money. We'll find out what's happening there. There's the Nkandla Constitutional Court that was underway. And what does it mean for the current makeup of South Africa's constitution and democracy? Before we get into that, let's get our news with Onan Nsinsi. And we take a look at your headlines. Around 30,000 foreign terrorist fighters originating from over 100 countries are actively engaged with IS. Chadian President Idris Deby, who has been in power since 1990, will run for a fifth term in office. And more than 14,000 refugees from Burundi live in the Lucenda camp in eastern DRC, while some are living with host families. Nigeria's intelligence agency says it has arrested a recruiter for the Islamic State Group IS, as well as seven alleged members of the Boko Haram offshoot Ansaru. The announcement comes nearly a year after the leader of Boko Haram in northeast Nigeria, Abu Bakr Shikar, pledged alliance to IS leaders in Syria and Iraq. Speculations has been rife since then on whether closer links would be forged between the two groups, with lawless Libya and the remote Sahel region pinpointed as a possible source of contact. Meanwhile, around 30,000 foreign terrorist fighters originating from over 100 countries are actively engaged with the IS or associated groups. This according to the United Nations Secretary General's very first report of the threat of IS to international peace and security. Jocelyn Sambira has more. ISIL's attraction to potential recruits continues unabated, particularly among young people from both developed and developing countries. The terrorist organization, also known as Daesh, has stepped up operations across West and North Africa, the Middle East, and South and Southeast Asia, the UN political affairs chief said. Its global expansion strategy may be a reaction to recent territorial losses inflicted by international military efforts. 
Chadian President Idris Deby, who has been in power since 1990, will run for a fifth term in office after being chosen as his party's candidate. If he wins enough ballots in the voting set for April 10th, Deby will extend his grip on power that began in 1990 when he overthrew former President Hussein Habre. On Tuesday, Deby announced he intended to restore term limits, saying they provide vitality to the country's young democracy. The United Nations mission in DRC, MONUSCO, says insecurity in Burundi has forced thousands of people to flee the country. More than 14,000 are living in the Lucenda camp in eastern DRC, while some are living with host families. The influx continues amid increasing violence in DRC, General Bamweza reports. The most affected by consequences of the instability situation that hits Burundi are the populations of Lucenda in the Fizi territory, Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. These are indeed the ones hosting thousands of Burundian refugees who have been forced to flee their country due to insecurity and continuing violence. Infiltrations from Burundi have been regularly reported. The UN mission here has called on Burundian refugees to refrain from any violence. And finally, South Africa's opposition party, the EFF, is not expected to have the support of any other party in parliament if its members disrupt the State of the Nation address on Thursday. The EFF has threatened not to let President Jacob Zuma proceed with his speech unless he answers questions about the economy and the replacement of former Finance Minister Nkantanene. However, other parties want an address free from interruption. Mercedes Besant has more. The DA says any disruption of the State of the Nation address will protect President Zuma. The UDM says while it's praying for a sona free of interruption, presiding officers should be flexible and apply their minds when applying the rules of Parliament. The co-chairperson of Parliament's sub-rules committee, Richard Mdakani, is confident that political parties will adhere to the joint rules, saying no points of order or privilege will be allowed. But the EFF says nothing will stop them from from raising any point or ask President Zuma a question tomorrow using the same joint rules of parliament. In recapping on your top stories, around 30,000 foreign terrorist fighters originating from over 100 countries are actively engaged with the IS. Chadian President Idris Deby, who has been in power since 1990, will run for a fifth term in office. And more than 14,000 refugees from Burundi leave in the Lucenda camp in Eastern DRC, while some are leaving with host families. Channel African News, I am Onilensinsi. Hello listener, join Channel Africa in celebrating its 50th anniversary. Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. Join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966.
send us your contact number to include your memories in our celebrations. Email your contacts to info at channelafrica.org or write to us at Channel Africa PO Box 913103 Auckland Park, Johannesburg 2006. You can also SMS to plus 27 82332 Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Thank you for listening to us on Channel 902 on DSTV. We're also on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. That's our main shortwave service into the African continent. And remember, you can also listen to us online on www.channelafrica.co.za. Well, we are in a historical point in South Africa. Today, we want to unpack the happenings yesterday's of the Nkantla Concord case that was underway. Really look at uh, what does it mean for the current makeup of South Africa's constitution and democracy. Now we know that the Constitutional Court has reserved judgment on the EFF and DA's uh, application that President uh, Zuma be ordered to pay back some of the money spent on Gandla. The court's justices questioned whether they should compel Parliament to hold the President accountable to the public protector following a findings in the Gandla uh, report. Zuma was, uh, has already proposed that the Auditor General and National Treasury arrange a calculation of how much of the 246 million rands spent on non-security upgrades uh, he should pay back. But the public protector, Tulima Donsela, said that only she could decide whether to change her conclusions. And until that is done, Zuma had to abide by what she had ordered. Now, to help us on this, we've got Professor Diniko Maluleka, who is a political commentator. And we have uh, Pepe Lapi. Dube is a legal advisor at the Center for Constitutional Rights. And also we've got Marinus uh, uh, Vietjes, who is a constitutional and a public law expert. I want to start with you, Professor Maluleke. Thank you for joining us on our program. What were your observations of uh, the Constitutional Court uh, uh, proceedings yesterday? Yeah, I'll, I'll leave the legal uh, uh, niceties of... Sure, sure. Could you repeat uh, that? It's a bit, a bit unclear, the voice. Okay, I... I colleagues. Sure, sure. Um, I just want to know, just from a political perspective, uh, 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 Professor Malulek, what was your observation of, of, of yesterday's happenings? Yeah. I thought well, it was uh, a very... Hello. Okay, uh, prof- uh, con- uh, Marinas, can you just wait for me? I'm, I'm still addressing uh, Professor Tiniko there. Uh, just hold on and let's yes. just uh, hear from uh, Professor Tiniko there. You can go ahead, yes. Professor. Yes, um, yes. I think well, what is, uh, uh, was very obvious yesterday was that uh, it was a real uh, political uh, defeat for the African National Congress, for government, uh, and in, 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 in many ways for Parliament uh, in, in, in South Africa. It, was, uh, it, it feels like it's going to become a, a resounding victory for, for the EFF to start with, uh, but also for the DA and all those uh, that joined. I think the, the ultimate uh, victor is likely to be the South African citizen and the office of the public uh, protector is likely to to grow in stature if it hasn't uh, been up there already uh, so i think what what will happen uh, from now going on 
uh, well, first we must wait for the court to to make uh, its decision known, its its own uh, verdict uh, finally. But we've already seen uh, from today the ruling party uh, trying to manage the crisis because the real crisis here is not merely constitutional. Uh, the real crisis is political. How does a, a President Jacob Zuma continue uh, to do his job in Parliament, in government, uh, we, if, if indeed the finding is adverse, uh, the verdict is adverse to him? How does he continue to do it uh, with uh, the dignity that he is required to conduct his job? And how does the ANC stay together? united behind him uh, as he proceeds to complete his term in office. Mm. Um, we've already had the General Secretary of the ANC uh, uh, trying to uh, put some distance between the, the ANC and the President this morning in one interview, saying that we should distinguish uh, between the President of the country and the President of the ANC. Uh, so it's all uh, political uh, fallout management uh, going forward now for the ruling party. Well, let me move on to you, constitutional and public law expert Marinus Vietjes. Thank you for joining us as well. Your thoughts about some of uh, the conversations that were had yesterday. What did you think of uh, the proceedings at the constitutional court? Well, first, it is narrowing down to the real issue. Apart from, and I listen to my colleague, it's true, it's a political question, but the constitutional issue is really what are the remedial powers of the public protector? Because it's very clear in the Constitution, she has the capacity, she's got the, 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 the power to take remedial action. Can she then... <clears throat> demand from the president to pay back, or is it just recommendation? I must point to the fact that in Kenton Park, when this clause was discussed at the Office of the Public Protector, there was a very strong feeling that it's not simply an ombudsman, you know, the Scandinavian ombudsman making recommendations to government, that it is a public protector. So... Uh, the public protector must have a very definite um, uh, office and also security of office. It, uh, he or she cannot be removed just by the president as he did with his minister of finance. It must be a two-thirds majority in parliament. Also, the constitution says her decisions must be respected by organs of government. And what's more, she can take remedial action. And it's that very, you know, definite question. What are the scope Mm. and the contents of a remedial action? Now, if the court comes out and says, well, she can make sure, and Parliament must follow it, that her recommendations, her findings must be given effect to. In this case, and this came out very clearly in the very, yes, I must say, evidence of the minister and the uh, uh, 
and the, the, the report on the Kunla, I mean, it was a very sad mm. performance to mm. show that they haven't done their job. So, politically, yes, the president is in the position that he can say, well, I tried everything. I asked my minister to bring out a report. Let's forget that that report was influenced and was not uh, impartial. But anyhow, you can say, I gave my minister the, you know, asking to bring out a report, and now I'm prepared to pay back. It's still got to be worked out. Mm. So one cannot really say the president has totally, apart from what we think politically, Mm. Mm. that he's totally ignore the findings of the public protector. Let me take that back to uh, Pepela Pidube um, and bring her in into that conversation, the legal advisor at uh, the Center for Constitutional Rights. Does this actually show us that uh, this constitutional that we hail and say is one of the best in the world has some loopholes, Pepela Pidube? Good morning, thank you for having me. I wouldn't necessarily call it loopholes, but I think it's important to remember that what we've seen so far is just a very interesting example of the way the notion of separation of powers works in that we have the parliament, you know, the, the legislature, and parliament in terms of the constitution. Sorry, the, the sound is very, very... I can't hear this thing. Sure, sure. I'll try to reiterate what she's saying to you. Uh, if you can't hear, I'll just reiterate what uh, Pepe Lapi is trying to highlight yes. uh, to you, Marinas, as soon as she's done. You can go ahead, Pepe Lapi. Okay. So, as I was saying, so you have Parliament, and in terms of the Constitution, Parliament is supposed to have an oversight and accountability function. So, it has this oversight and accountability function over the executive. And then, ultimately, we have the Constitution and we have the Constitutional Court that's supposed to test all the laws that come out of Parliament. So, what should have happened, ideally, was that after this report had been submitted by the public protector, Parliament was then supposed to exercise its oversight role over the executive in order to make sure that the Constitution was adhered to. So the manner in which the case ended up before the Constitutional Court was simply the fact that the two other branches of government failed to live by what the Constitution mandates them to do. So it's just a very interesting display of how the notion of the separation of powers works. And of course the big question is always whom does the power lie? We have three pillars Mm. of government each exercising these third um, mm. powers and functions, then who does the power mm. lie? Mm. And arguably, the final word is with the constitutional court because the constitution does state that the constitution is the supreme law of the land. Mm. Well, l- l- let me take that to Professor Tiniku Maluleke, and I, um, I know that I have to let you go, Professor. In terms of that issue of separation of powers, that has been a big political discussion within Parliament from uh, EFF, DA, and other uh, opposition uh, political parties and good point that's brought there by Pepe Lapidube. Do you think that this case could actually remedy uh, that situation? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it could uh, probably uh, address the question of the responsibilities of Parliament uh, in relation to not just uh, the President uh, but also the Executive. Uh, 
especially because if one was listening carefully to the arguments between the representative of the National Assembly uh, and, uh, and the judges, uh, you could see that uh, unless uh, the representative was just uh, uh, playing up to some brief that she had, uh, there seems to be a real misunderstanding. Uh, as to what uh, what the role of of parliament is in relation to to the executive uh, at at some point i thought that she sounded as if she was saying that um, uh, hmm. the, the 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 you know the parliament uh, has got uh, some scrutinizing role um, and 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 did not seem to have a full uh, realization of uh, the oversight uh, role uh, that that parliament has. So I think it will help. I don't know that anything new really uh, it was being said. I think that what, what the judges were saying and that, that they are likely to say is simply to remind a parliament of what the constitution says uh, because it looks to me that this, this particular parliament uh, seems to be uh, a little confused about its place and its role. Hmm. Well, I'm going to take a quick break and then I'm going to come back to our other guests to really unpack this and also look at uh, really the submissions and the difference between the applications made by the various parties, the EFF, the DA Balagambetes, uh, uh, also judge was there, the Minister of Police also had a minister there, I mean a representation there. And also there was a huge session in the court where um, the National Assembly Speaker's lawyer, Lindin Kosi uh, Thomas, uh, fumbled through her submissions and and it seems like she was grilled for a long period of time. And what was under scrutiny there? And I think it's what Professor Diniko Maluleka just cited there. Uh, give us your thoughts on the story. You can SMS us on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. We have uh, Professor Diniko Maluleka. We have to let him go. Uh, but we'll stay with Pepe Lapidube, the legal advisor at the Center for Constitutional Rights. And also we've got the constitutional and public law expert, Marinas Viejas. Uh, let's take a quick break. We'll be back. I am an African. I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees, the flowers, the seas, and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land. My body has frozen in our frosts and in our latter-day snows. It has thawed in the warmth of our sunshine and melted in the heat of the midday sun. The crack and the rumble of the summer thunders, lashed by startling lightning, have been a cause both of trembling and of hope. The fragrances of nature have been as pleasant to us as the sight of the wild blooms of the citizens of the felt. The dramatic shapes of the dragon's back, the soil-colored waters of the Likwa, Ikreli, Notugai, and the sands of the Kalahad have all been panels of the set on the natural stage on which we act out the foolish deeds of the theater of the day. 
Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Today, we're trying to unpack the happenings yesterday at the Nkantla Concord case that was underway. It's a big issue in South Africa because it seems to be really, really determining the political sphere. And also playing, you know, opposition uh, parties seem to be uh, actually utilizing this also as a way of mobilizing their own uh, functions. But uh, uh, that was our views that came out from... Uh, Professor Tiniko Malulek, and that's what he was surmising there. But coming to you, um, Marinus, looking at the different applications that were made by the various party, the EFF, DA, I know that the National Assembly Speaker uh, lawyer was also there. And what, what, what was the difference between the various applications, especially between the EFF and the DA? Why didn't they just use one lawyer? One person would argue. <laughs> yes, you know, the sound is not so terribly good. So, so I apologize for that. We're still working on that. No, but uh, sure. uh, you see, I, I want to go back to the okay. real constitutional problem here. I mean, it is now in the political arena, yes, but you know the problem with our constitution is, and the constitution can be amended, but the problem is that the president is elected a parliamentary majority. So, the parliamentary majority will support him in any case because they elected him. They're not going to turn against him. And we have a president that's extremely clever in manipulating his parliamentary majority and his, his cabinet. And that he's done so far, but he's, you know, Time and again, and the opposition parties reminded him, what are you going to do with the findings of the public protector? Now it's for the Constitutional Court to define those powers of the public protector. And then it will go back into the political arena because that is where it started. And the way I see it, Mm. the President will say, yes, Yes, and it came out very clearly. Uh, it's okay with the public protector. I accept the powers, but, and it's for that reason I offered to pay something. But, of course, it's got to be, the estimates still got to be done. So it's a very clever political move, and it might very well be that the court say, well, uh, the president, in fact, accepted the, the 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 minister's report was wrong it was not ill it was ill conceived but the president conceded that the findings of the of the of the public protector must be given effect so what's your problem uh, we're not going to give judgment on the powers of the of the public protector in this instance because it becomes academic. That's my why. Mm, mm. And this is why, that's the reason why I feel very strongly that the viewpoints of the existing parties, the the defendants in the, the applicants in the, must be taken seriously in the court, which in the final instance, the guardian of our constitution would give very clear indication mm, mm. what the powers of the public 
Sure. Let me take that to you, Pepe Lapidub, in terms of what we saw yesterday, in terms of the submissions. I'm also a bit confused about why didn't we see a collaboration between the EFF and the DA? Uh, why do we see two different uh, uh, parties actually going, you know, pretty much overall dealing with the same issue? Well, it, it, it's not, I mean, of course, both issues are related, but then sure. they weren't quite the same issues. So just bear in mind that, remember that the DA joined, later joined the case, but then they had initially started off in their own case against the SABC COO, and then there, that's when the um, Supreme Court of Appeal had made for the very first time, just important findings on just what exactly the status of recommendations that the public protector makes are, right? So the EFF, on the other hand, they actually brought the case on two fronts. So first of all, it was on a technicality where they were applying for direct access to the constitutional court because, you know, in terms of the constitution and in terms of the court's own rules, you first of all have to go to a high court if you're going to bring about a constitutional challenge, but then it's only in exceptional circumstances and where you can approach the constitutional court. So the EFF was using, went to the constitutional court on that first ground, and then secondly, the basically, which really was the thrust of their point of 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 their case, they argued that the National Assembly had failed its oversight and accountability mm. function, that mm. in terms of Section 55 of the Constitution, and the DA's case, on the other hand, basically their point was that the president's failure to engage rationally with the public protector's findings was irrational, was illegal and unconstitutional. So they wanted the constitutional court to make a ruling on that matter. But it's also interesting to note that there was a another party to the case, which was Corruption Watch. So Corruption Watch applied to the constitutional court to be admitted as a friend of the court as, as amicus. So basically the amicus is there to bring a new point that would give greater clarity to the case on hand. And their point, which hadn't been argued by either the EFF or the DA, their point was really that just looking at the history of the public protector, you know, before the public the public protector is established in terms of the constitution, but pre the um, pre the constitution there was a similar point. Mm, mm, mm. And so they said if you trace really if you go back into history, mm. the public protector it's it, it, it clear that the public sure. protector should have the power to provide effective remedies. So they basically said, if you look at the history, there's really no other reading that can be given into the into the powers and functions of the public protector. So essentially, those were the three matters that were mm. before the, the, the court that the court had to make a ruling on. Mm, mm, mm. Well, I want to also come back to some of the issues that were highlighted by Mariners after this break. Uh, look at could we see a form of impeachment here? with this particular case, maybe an argument of impeachment if we see uh, the the constitutional court saying, well, he does have to pay the money. Would we have to see a case whereby maybe there's an, a vote of no confidence within uh, the parliament and that being taken back to the constitutional court? Could that be the direction where we're seeing things are going in that way? We're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Benjamin Mushatama. You're listening right here to African Dialogue. Remember, you can also join us on Twitter for the conversation at African Dialogue or at Channel Africa. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back after this to really look at some of the areas concerning this uh, case.
Hello, listener. Join Channel Africa in celebrating its 50th anniversary. Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. Join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966. Send us your contact number to include your memories in our celebrations. Email your contacts to info at channelafrica.org or write to us at Channel Africa PO Box 913-103 Auckland Park, Johannesburg 2006. You can also SMS to plus 27 8233259905. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Well, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is African Dialogue with me, Benjamin Mushatama. Remember, you're listening to us on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. And uh, today we're looking at the Gandla Concord case that uh, was uh, taking place yesterday. And I want to look at uh, that huge session that, that took place between uh, the justices and the lawyer, Lyndon Gorsi Thomas, when she fumbled through her submissions. And, and I don't know if you saw this marinus uh you know it was yes. almost like she w- didn't know what to say and she was being grilled what was happening in that particular situation there well i, I felt sorry for her because she had to defend the undis- indispensable mm. um, uh, viewpoint that uh, the minister and the speaker did their job they didn't do their job they didn't they didn't you know put the president in the box and they didn't took up the findings of the public protector seriously. They just became, you know, in the true sense, his master's voice. And that is why the poor advocate had such a, a hard time explaining their position. Their position didn't stand the test. And that was the reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Pepelapi, your thoughts around that particular moment where we saw that grilling of um, Lyndon Corsi Thomas? Because other people made their submissions and they moved on pretty quickly, but it, we seemed to have paused at that moment when we saw uh, uh, law, the lawyer Lyndon Corsi Thomas. Yes, yes, yes absolutely. Yeah, so, absolutely. Sure, sure. Right. I, I'm taking that to Pepelapi. Pepelapi, your mm. thoughts? Oh, yes, it was a bit Pardon? Difficult. I can't hear. Oh, we're struggling with your line there, Marinas. I'm not sure what's going on with our technical side. Sure, but I was just referring that to Pepe Lapi. Pepe Lapi, your thoughts around that moment? Oh, yes. Um, I, I thought it, it was certainly cringeworthy to anybody who was um, watching. And, and But, I mean, ultimately, if you are a legal representative and you're going to argue a case before the court, you know, you need to be in a position to defend every single aspect of your case. And I think yesterday was just an example of the fact that the minister and the National Assembly, or rather Parliament, simply did not have a strong enough case and that was just an example, a glaring example of just, you know, the fact that they were simply wrong on the law and their interpretation of the constitution was simply wrong and that was an excellent highlight of that fact.
And I, I also want to look at that particular issue of, uh, um, you know, the area of uh, the biasness of this, because, you know, that, that came in the biasness of uh, the National Assembly Speaker. It became very much prominent within that debate. Pepe Lapi? Of, on, on the issue of the, the bias of... It, it, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And if one takes into consideration what Section 55 of the Constitution says, which basically says that Parliament's first duty is to hold the executive accountable, but due to the bias, perceived or otherwise, of the of, 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 of the presiding officer within Parliament, and, and you know, there's been a lot of academic articles as well as political commentators who've just basically said that all throughout the parliamentary debates or the debates in the National Assembly that were taking place last year, it seemed as if the Speaker of Parliament was not allowing thorough questions to get through to the executive. So ultimately, the ball goes back to her court that because she failed to hold the executive accountable, because she basically shielded the president from further scrutiny, from further questions, that really was why the matter ended up before the court. Yeah, yeah, I think we're having some line problems there. Sorry there, Pepe Lapi. We're having some lines problems there with uh, uh, the constitutional public law expert, Marinus. But I think we're going to let him go and just carry on with you as, as, as we wrap it up. And, and let's look at where we are right now in terms of Concord reserving its judgment. What does that mean that the constitutional court has reserved judgment? What processes are, are we going to see from here? Oh, no, it just simply means that the judges are obviously going to give themselves time to apply their minds to the facts that were brought before them and that they are simply going to take their time, according to the rules, to issue a judgment. So it just means that the judgment isn't going to be issued at the close of the pleadings, at the close of the arguments that were made by the legal representatives. So the court is going to come back in another date and time to give a judgment. And also, in terms of moving forward, could we see a process of impeachment? You know, some of the views that were brought there by uh, uh, Marinus was the fact that, uh, you know, the, the issue of the majority making decisions in Parliament is one that's contentious, and there's been a, con- a conversation around that. If we see the president of South Africa having to pay back the money, there could be a vote of no confidence from opposition uh, parties. And then we could see a case whereby maybe there is a move towards impeachment. I don't know, could we see us going there in terms of challenging the Constitution? Well, in terms of the rules of procedure that are set out in the Constitution, they needs to be a serious violation of the Constitution or the law, or the President needs to be simply incapacitated to carry on as President. And then in order for the vote to carry through, it needs to be supported by at least two-thirds of its members. So we need to bear in mind that right now the governing party has, I think, 62% of the votes. So it, 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 it may not necessarily pass. I mean, unless members of the governing party decide to vote to the opposition, but it, it may not necessarily pass. Mm. And then we also have the rules for um, voting a motion of no confidence against the president, and again, it needs to be supported by a two-thirds majority, so it obviously comes back to the numbers, and yeah, unless and until somebody within the governing party decides to vote to the opposition, which is highly unlikely, so we'd be pretty much 
back in the same position where the president will serve his term until 2019. Mm. As we wrap it up, I'm sure you, you work with constitutional issues all the time. What, what, what is standing out for you at this particular moment? Do you think that we could see some changes within some the constitutions? Do you see the possibility of amendments? No, mm. absolutely not. Look, okay. I think um, it's, it's, it's a very, we're still a relatively young democracy and we're still finding our feet. And, but I think the important thing about this, about what's happened is that it basically affirms, you know, the importance of the rule of law and the supremacy of the Constitution. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, we need to take it back to what the Constitution says about the powers of the public protector. And really, even amongst legal experts, there was a lot of uncertainty because the public protector, on the one hand, makes makes these recommendations for remedial actions, but at the same time, she's not a court. You know, she doesn't have the same checks and balances that courts have, you know, in terms of, you know, courts allow you to have legal representation, courts allow you to challenge evidence, you know, the hearings are in an open and public mm. um, environment, so people, you know, it's, it's just... The courts provide a different form of checks and balances yeah. which the public protector doesn't have. So, of course, you know, the question was, you know, do you want a person who doesn't have the same powers of the courts to ultimately have, you know, that same power that the court has, you know, to have decisions that are binding and yet her investigation and her, just the manner in which she works doesn't have the same public scrutiny that the courts have. So I think we needed to get clarity on that mm. on, on, on that point. And I am quite looking forward to the judgment because as it is, you know, <laughs> we still don't know sure. the extent to which, you know, the public protector can exercise her powers and functions. With that being said as well, looking at the public protector, you could also scrutinize the powers of the president. Those are also being checked here and what he can actually do in terms of his relationships his relationship with the public protector. Yes, absolutely. I think it's actually a very exciting time, Mm. you know, just within the legal framework in, in the sense that, you know, we have all these notions, like we do understand that, you know, we abide by a doctrine of separation of powers, you know, that's all well and good on paper, but then from a practical perspective, what exactly does it mean, you know, to what extent can the public protector using her constitutional powers you know enforce her remedial actions what's the role of parliament in relation to the executive you know how do you hold the head of a state to how do you hold him accountable you know Mm. so these are all very interesting questions which we are seeing developing and hopefully you know the constitutional court judgment is going to put an end to these kind of questions but I think we just need to bear in mind as I said that you know we're still a young democracy you know we're still finding our feet so it's important that the constitutional court gives us greater clarity because as I said, it's one thing for these provisions to be written down in the Constitution, but it's mm. another thing to see what the practical ramifications of these provisions are. Mm. And another thing I wanted to ask, just from just the conversations I've been having, looking at the, the resources that, that the public protector has and the separation of uh, the what the function of the public protector is and also the NPA and the resources that it has. Uh, why are we also seeing the division between those, those two states of uh, power that are almost doing similar types of uh, functions? 
Well, I think it's 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 just important to look at the society in in context, mm. in the sense that you know not everybody has you know the okay like what we saw yesterday in mm. court. You know, for example, the president had five legal representatives. You know, he had two senior counsel and three junior counsel representing him. Mm. And bearing in mind that senior counsel can cost as much as fifty thousand rand a day, mm. so. It means, you know, the legal process, at least going through the courts, can be a very expensive practice for the ordinary South Africans. So we do need these other institutions which have, you know, kind of the same powers as, as courts. So we need other avenues in which people can hold the state accountable. And also I just think it's important for a nation like South Africa, which has a very dominant um, ruling, which has a very dominant governing party mm. to have other avenues, to have other ways in which the state can be held accountable. So it is quite important to have these other bodies that mm. have the same functions as the courts. Well, thank you so much, uh, Pepelapi, for giving us your time. And uh, thank you to our other guests. We had to let them go. And uh, thank you for being part of the program. Thank you for having me. Great. That was Pepe Lapidube, the legal advisor at the Center for Constitutional Rights. And uh, sorry about the sound there. I think the constitutional and the public law expert, Marina Sviechus, was in a very busy area. So she struggled listening to us and hearing us, and we struggled hearing him. So we had to let him go there. Earlier on, we had Professor Diniko Maluleke, who's a political commentator, giving us uh, his views. What are your views around this story? You can SMS us on plus 2779. Uh, 695 Hey, you can also give us your commentary on a line. You can go to at African Dialogue. That's our handle. Or you can go to our Channel Africa handle at African at Channel Africa rather at Channel Africa 1. It's the numeric one at the end. Don't forget our Facebook page simply titled Channel Africa. We're going to go for a quick break and then when we come back we'll get our economics news. Hello, listener. Join Channel Africa in celebrating its 50th anniversary. Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. Join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966. Send us your contact number to include your memories in our celebrations. Email your contact to info at channelafrica.org or write to us at Channel Africa PO Box 913-103 Auckland Park, Johannesburg 2006. You can also SMS to plus 27-8233-25905. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Well, that takes us to our economics update. We've got Wisani Matibula standing by. Mm-hmm. 
Good morning. Thanks, Benjamin. Business has welcomed the South African government's commitment to improve uh, cooperation. President Jacob Zuma on Tuesday held a second meeting with uh, the country's top business leaders in Cape Town in a move to reassure them and investors about the faltering economy. The South African business sector has raised concerns over policy uncertainties and had serious reservations over Zuma's decision to replace Finance Minister Tlantlanene late last year. Old Mutual's Emerging Market CEO Ralph Mupita. Frank exchanger of ideas, in particular the ideas about what's necessary to avoid a sovereign ratings downgrade. And we feel our contribution as business, those recommendations, you know, the eight actions we spoke about were very well accepted. And the fact that there's going to be a task team that is going to be put forward to try and take some of these uh, recommendations forward and try and turn them into very specific actions. I take very you know, uh, confidence that um, there will be traction and follow through in the action. So very pleased with the outcome from today. United States President Barack Obama has signed into law a measure aimed at expanding electricity to millions of households in sub-Saharan Africa. The Electrify Africa Act, which unanimously passed the House of Representatives and the Senate leverages partnerships with the private sector in order to bring first-time electricity access to some 50 million people in underserved parts of Africa. No new U.S. federal funds are allocated for the project, which instead will use a system of loan guarantees to add 20,000 megawatts of electricity to Africa's grid by the year 2020. And the World Food Program as, uh, says humanitarian assistance to recent famine-affected areas in Zimbabwe will begin next month. This follows Zimbabwe's declaration of a drought state of disaster last week. It estimated that 14 million people in the southern African nation could go hungry this year, and Zimbabwe being one of the worst-affected countries. Shinga Nyoka reports from Harare. The number of hungry people has climbed to 3 million. Cattle are dying and crops are failing as a result of the El Nino-related drought. One family of seven say they are eating worms that have emerged after last week's patchy rain. Before the rain, they were surviving on a cup of tea, maize meal and salt. More than one in four Zimbabweans will need food aid this year. Aid organizations have launched a further appeal for food and money, but it could take weeks or even months before the food reaches these communities. Zambia has scrapped nearly 73% hike in electricity tariffs for industrial and commercial users following an outcry from consumers. The country's power regulator last December approved an increase in electricity charges to 10.35 US cents per kilowatt hour from 6 American cents previously. And finally, the largest diamond uncovered in over a century has been officially named ahead of a secretive roadshow to find a buyer for the rare stone in Botswana. The diamond has been named Lisedi Laruna, which means a light in the Setswana language. The 1,100-carat diamond is about the size of a tennis ball. The gem was pulled from the ground last November at the Karowe mine in Botswana. And that's your economics news. Well, it's time for us to move on and get our sports from feeling what.
In our sports update, we're betting off with cricket news. The Proteas produced an all-round spirited performance on Tuesday night to register their first ODI with over England in three outings when they recorded a seven-wicket victory at the Super Sports Park in St. Chiron in Pretoria. A record-breaking opening partnership of 239 between Quentin de Kock, 135, and Hashim Amla, 127, laid the foundation for A.B. De Villiers' men to prevent a humiliating 3-0 series unassailable lead for the inform England. De Villiers commends his side's all-round performances. Obviously very happy about that. Uh, it was a pretty desperate to get a result in this game. I think it's uh, hopefully the sign of really good stuff to come. It's exactly what we wanted. There's a good solid performance here. Uh, I thought we did the basics really well to start off with. With the ball in hand, we had good energy in the field. And then obviously um, that just went into the batting as well. One positive the protest will take to the Wanderers for Friday's clash is that the home side is unbeaten at the bull ring in pink in three outings. Divila says... They do not need any more motivation to perform on Friday, abate playing to save the series. He adds that he hopes their records achieved at the venue in previous games will also serve as motivation for the team. We really enjoy playing at the Bull Ring. It's one of those grounds you just feel comfortable at. As a South African walking out there, there's always a big crowd supporting us there. Um, the pink time makes it even more special. It's um, playing not only for us winning games of cricket, there's obviously a bigger reason for us walking out there, and it's, it's a good cause in, in the whole pink day. We just love the vibe and the atmosphere at the Bull Ring on days like that especially, and hopefully we can um, entertain the crowd again. And in football news, the Cameroon Football Federation, Fekafoot, have confirmed that the country's national team will host South Africa in a 2017 Africa Cup of Nations qualifier at the newly built Stade Omnisports de Limbe and not in Yaoundé. KEF have homologated the 20,000 capacity stadium in Limbe, a seaside city in southwest Cameroon. The arena was constructed between 2012 and 2014 and after a few finishing touches, it has been approved to host international matches. South Africa will face the indomitable Lions on the 26th of March before the reverse fixture on home soil a few days later. Bafana Bafana currently occupy bottom spot in Group M following a goalless draw against Gambia and a 3-1 defeat away to Mauritania. And the head of Kenya's Olympic Committee, Kipchoge Keino, says that he had not suggested pulling the national squad from August Rio Olympics if the Zika virus reaches epidemic levels. According to earlier reports, Kenya had considered pulling its elite runners and other athletes out of the Rio Olympics unless it got assurances they would not be exposed to the Zika virus outbreak in Brazil. At his office in Nairobi, Keino said everything is entirely with the International Olympic Committee and Brazilian government. And finally, with volleyball, the Uganda Women National Volleyball Team has departed for Cameroon to participate in the Rio Olympic Games. That's a women volleyball qualifier set to get underway this weekend. The team comprises of 10 players and 4 officials. 17 national teams are expected to participate in the week-long tournament, with the winner automatically qualifying for the Rio Olympic Games. The second and the third place teams will get a wild card to play in the Asian qualifiers later in the year, and despite their experience, Uganda captain Mili Leka says they will give it their best. We've had ample time to prepare. We've had a few months, although not consistent, but we've had a few, t- few months, which is more than what we usually have. So the team is a bit better than what it was before. So we expect a better performance than we had before.
The task is momentous, monumentous, obviously, considering it's the best from Africa and everyone is fighting for just that one spot. We don't expect to get that one spot. If it did come, that would be great, but we don't expect to get it. What we expect is to expose the new members that we have and get more experience for the future engagements. That's the Sport News this hour. Well, that's how we wrap it up. Thank you for being part of our program today. Remember, you can continue to be part of the Channel Africa family. Go to our Twitter handle at uh, Channel Africa One, and you can go to at African Dialogue. Thank you for joining us today. Remember, we come to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. Don't forget to give us your views as well by SMS on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Until tomorrow, God bless.